You are listening to Mike Seminary and Friends. Well, if you listened last week to my folks, uh, my friends from the ERC and the Commerce Department, you learned a lot about uh, the important role North Dakota has played for a long time when it comes to carbon capture, sequestration, storage. And you also heard uh, the CEO from EERC, Charlie, talk about the importance in terms of the long haul, the long run, really the runway off of fossil fuels that some people want us to be off of it today, that that's just not going to happen. There'll be another 2 billion people on the planet within the next 30 years, most of them in, you know, countries that you can't even really say are developing because they have so many struggles. And fossil fuels is the most affordable way for them to provide a meaningful a way of life, a living, to keep their pharmaceuticals refrigerated, so on and so forth. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be paying attention to being as clean as and efficient as possible. That said, you know, the United States has, you know, probably doing this better than almost anybody, but there are some actors that I we could probably say maybe are playing by some different rules. And that leads me to my guest uh, today that is playing a very important role in an act called the Prove It Act. We'll get to the details in that, uh, in that area in just a moment. It's, I'm so excited to have with me Dave Banks. Dave is a uh, climate policy advocate, a policymaker. He's an economist. He, he's also a senior fellow at the Citizens for Responsible Energy Policy, if I said that correct. Um, it's great to see you, Dave. Welcome to Mike Seminary and Friends. How are you? Mike, it's it's great to be here. Hello to hello to you and your all of your audience out there. Well, thank you. And I think I messed that up. It's Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions. Yes, you got it there. Thank you so much. How's everything in your world before I, I get to the Prove It Act and everything else? How's life going yeah. for you? You know, it's D.C., right? It's it's uh, it's the circus that everyone imagines, <laughs> right? I think right now, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to figure out, you know, what we have left uh, for the calendar year for Congress. And then, you know, what's what's the uh, what's the election going to look like? I think at, at this point in time. People are becoming more and more and more interested in in the outcomes, and we have a number of different scenarios, right? You know, where I mean, it looks increasingly likely that you know Mr. Trump is has a very good shot of being reelected, right? So Republicans have a good shot of getting the White House back. I think that there's a, a consensus that we probably will get the Senate back, but there's a good chance we lose the House. So it could be a switch, it could be switcheroo or switcheroo, as we would say, right? where we get everything that they have and they get everything that we currently have. So we have to try to figure out what all that means. And, 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 and <clears throat> a long way, a way to maybe work just a little bit more productively together, but that, maybe that's too much of a pipe dream. <laughs> but the, well, you know what, uh, you know, and I think, look, I mean, uh, Senator Kramer is, is certainly an optimist when it comes to that. And look, yeah. and I, and I, and I really think that, um, you know, for those of us who work, you know, either for the federal government or in in 
jobs and roles that are heavily related to policymaking in Washington, D.C., we owe that to uh, the citizens of this great country uh, to make sure we do what we can uh, to be bipartisan and to seek this national consensus that oftentimes, as you know, eludes us. Right, exactly. Well, let's go back to the, the Prove It Act, and that's uh, co-sponsored by Senator Kramer, as you mentioned, and Senator Chris Coons from uh, Delaware. And as I as I read the act, it, it, it's like a no-brainer to me. Um, and I'll... I'll put it in my words, and then I'm going to let you kind of run with it, Dave. Essentially, what this is, is it's asking the Department of Energy to do a comprehensive study to compare um, the emissions that are generated from the same block of goods, we'll call it, that are manufactured in the United States and then somewhere else, and in many cases, China, because they have, China has this still continued developing country status, if you will, and they're not playing by the same rules. And that, that's how I'll tee it up. And I'll let you run with it in terms of explaining the importance of that to the United States. I think, you know what, I think you did a great job. Um, you know, why don't we... Let's talk a little bit about, yes, the policy context. And, and you you touched on a really important point in that, look, I mean, the United States, when it comes to playing by the rules in trade, that's what we do, right? And we have, I think, we, I don't know if, if, folks, if folks listening in will remember, but in the, in the 1990s, we had, this, we had this conversation here in D.C. about China, and bringing China into, you know, the, the 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 relative free trade regime under the World Trade Organization, and what that would mean, and I think, I and mean, we were really naive, um, very very naive, because the general consensus was, well, we bring China into the World Trade Organization and let them benefit from having better access to the U.S. market. That's going to usher in an age of democracy in China, you know, and, and capitalism and, you know, and China will evolve to b become an ally and partner to the United States. Well, we we know that that obviously didn't work out the way that people, you know, talked about. And so, you know, instead what happened is that China joined the World Trade Organization, benefited significantly from having all that great access to the United States market and to, uh, and to other markets as well. But it's been estimated that the U.S. lost over, well, roughly three and a half million jobs, manufacturing jobs, because of China's membership in the World Trade Organization. And what that has meant to Americans, the everyday Americans, the poor, the working class Americans, is that it has limited the opportunities that they had previously for those gateway jobs into the middle class. Okay. And if you look at the middle class, the U.S. middle class has actually contracted since uh, since the, the period where China broke what came into the World Trade Organization. But what happened in China? It went from 3% of the Chinese population to over or roughly half of the Chinese population today. So there's been a significant, tremendous transfer of wealth 
from the United States, the, the European Union and other Western countries to China. So that's uh, that's kind of the context. And I think that I think that we have been we've been very sort of interested in, OK, how do we try to reset the international trade regime in a way that helps preserve free trade, but free trade among countries with shared values? And that's part of that process is, is identifying which countries cheat, right, and pursue unfair trade practices. And it's clear that China has cheated and looked for loopholes from day one, right? And there's nothing that suggests that China is going to change the way it behaves. And when people talk about, oh, Dave, the kind, the kind of policies that you're suggesting that the U.S. pursue when it comes to trade, uh, that's going to undermine the free trade system and result in inflation and increased consumer costs. But my point is, not, I was like, we haven't broken the international trade system. China has already broken it. And now we're trying to figure out how to put it together or hold it together or hold what parts make sense together. And so the Prove It Act, so the Prove It Act is, is part of that. But there's also another uh, another sort of angle here that we can discuss as well, because we certainly want to... As Americans, we want to showcase the relative superiority of American production when it comes to the environment, because our folks do it better. Or I don't know what you may there may be there may be a few folks out there that you know give us a run you know a run for it. But we clearly are top performers when it comes to environmental performance in the world, and so the Prove It Act would do just that. It would prove not only to um, the outside the, the community, you know, the foreign community, but it also it would also prove to some of our detractors here in the United States, you know, some of the environmental NGOs, for example, that claim that we're just absolutely horrible, that 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 our that our production processes, you know, need to be more and more and more regulated. Um, but we, so we want to show to them, no, no, let's step back, look at the facts and showcase how well the U.S. is doing compared to everyone else. Now, the second point of this, so you have the China piece, but now we're talking about other economies that are looking at imposing carbon taxes on our products that we sell to them. And the European Union <clears throat> is moving forward, and they're going to have uh, a trade regime that would impose carbon taxes on our products and compared to the carbon taxes that they pay, uh, that, that their own domestic producers pay. That's gonna kick in in 2026. That's gonna be followed by a UK trade regime in 2027. And we know that the Japanese and Australians and Canadians are looking to do, looking to pull something similar together. Well, the, as we, the, the possibility of countries coming up with methodologies because you have to figure out, okay, if they're going to tax us and impose a carbon tax on our products, they have to figure out what the, what the carbon intensity of our production is. And we know from, from experience and, and Senator Kramer has been part of this conversation. We know that they cheat us from time to time and they're unfair to us producers. So for example, we had a, we had a French, uh, 
company that was that was trying to sign a contract with a U.S. LNG producer. The French government stepped in and said, we're not going to allow this contract to go forward because U.S. production is dirtier than Russian production. Now, everyone in the know knows that's just blatantly false. But so the Prove It Act is going to help us sort of protect the, the commercial interests of our producers, right, when it comes to other countries trying to impose taxes or fees on our exports slash imports. The list of the products and byproducts that are part of the act, very extensive. I mean, if, if, it, if it isn't in there, it, maybe it doesn't produce any carbon at all. But with regards to global trade, as I as I read that, and, and the two big players in terms of manufacturing most things that most of us would think are part of our daily lives, refrigerators, stoves, microwaves, iPads, watches, automobiles, certain clothing, et cetera, et cetera. The majority of those consumer goods are produced either in China or here, but for the most part. And if they had to prove through this act that they were not as carbon friendly, let me put it that way, as, as our manufacturers are, what in the end could that mean for China and their, so many of their companies that are nationalized, by the way, what could that really mean to them in terms of competition with us? So that's a good question. So prove it, <clears throat> the study itself would help inform U.S. policymakers on sort of, you know, how do you, you know, how do you create a trade regime that would essentially create a competitive advantage for us? Now, we talked about sort of us defending ourselves from the Europeans and others who might want to impose carbon taxes on our production. And we talked about how, you know, we want to we want to push back on claims that, the, you know, the U.S. isn't as clean as we know that it is or that somehow China is a leader in environment uh, and, and emissions performance, which we know they're not. Uh, but this this uh, question here, and I think it's really important, looks at what could be the next step, right? And this next step, yes, could be, uh, we could give us, could arm our uh, policymakers with the data needed to create that policy that would create the competitive advantage. And, I, and uh, to get into, you know, a few details on what that could look like. And by the way, this is all very, it's premature in the sense that this is a fairly new policy that is has, is being considered, right? And the, and the policy specific, specifically is the United States has really high environmental standards. The American public, regardless if you're Republican, Democrat, we all, you know, we, we want the air, we want the water to be as clean as possible. Well, we want our producers to operate and produce and extract as cleanly as possible, right? And so if we have those standards, and by the way, and we're willing to pay more for those, right? And as a society, that's what we've decided. There's no one out there. You know, the Democrats would love to claim that that uh, that a second-term Trump administration would want to roll back all these environmental regulations. 
But, you know, but Mr. Trump has made it very clear that he supports clean air, clean water. And there's, they're not going to they're not going to go to that type of extreme that Democrats would say. So we all support clean air, clean water. I think the uh, the issue here is that and this is this, this is this is really, I think, a problem with the trade regime that we created. OK. Uh, and, and really. Uh, it, it's been it's been in the process for decades now after the Second World War, but that tr- but that trade regime opened itself up to look. Uh, we just want to we want to import the cheapest things that we can get. Period, regardless of how they're made, right? And that also I would extend that to human rights and labor standards. And I think that uh, I think that for us. You know, the big question we should ask if we're if if American society has said, look, you know, we're willing to pay more uh, for production here uh, because we want it to be or we want we're willing to pay more for environmental protection right here. Then why would we be open to importing goods from countries that don't have those same standards? Right. And I think that if you look at. You know some of the uh, some of the policy conversations that are let's call them America First policy conversations with let's say with that Mr. Lighthizer who used to be uh, Mr. Trump's U.S. Trade Representative. You know he'll argue that it doesn't make any sense for us to have these high standards impose them on ourselves and then import goods that aren't produced the same way, right? That the country a country like China will use lax environmental standards or performance, poor human rights records, but then turn around and use that as, as a competitive advantage to gain market share in the United States and elsewhere. And I think prove it is a first step in sort of giving us that information that would help us pull together a policy to combat what the Chinese are doing with unfair trade practices. You know, Prove It was co-sponsored. Well, there's a number, but the primary co-sponsors are North Dakota Senator uh, Kevin Kramer and Delaware Chris Coons. And I think it was back in June or July, whenever whenever it was introduced. And as I've done, you know, some scratch the surface research on this, it appears that the CBO, Congressional Budget Office, has not... Uh, put a cost estimate yet on this, which they do with every piece of proposed legislation. In the way I think of things, I'm saying to myself, okay, this deals with energy. Pretty hard to argue. There's something more controversial, divisive, and important right now than energy globally and producing clean, reliable, affordable energy. I, almost every country would agree that's pretty darn important. And then it involves trade. And we'll get to this in a little bit about how we're at a very significant disadvantage when it comes to how China is going about its global dominance efforts in trade. So my question is, how long does it take to get the CBO to give you a cost estimate on proposed legislation, especially something this important? Well, so I don't know what the what the actual process is in 
sort of getting the CBO. My guess is that the CBO doesn't weigh in until after uh, until after a bill uh, at least a, a starts to advance. That's that's my sense. Uh, and I don't so I don't know how much the study would cost. Right. Because remember, this is just a study to, to give us the information that we need to figure out next steps. Um, yeah. So I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. Well, you've been doing this a while. And I'm going to throw this out in my way of thinking. And I worked for two engineering firms for the better part of 20 years. So I'm very accustomed to uh, regulations and the importance of them and how they get advanced, how they're paid for it, and, and what that means to the owners of projects and then the end of the, you know, the end users of projects. I know I, I understand all of that, but th this thing is so important that almost the study seems kind of a waste of time. Yeah, we should just automatically be doing it uh, in terms of this widget was produced here, this widget was produced over there, and which one is embracing fully the regulations that we have in place in our country when, when it comes to uh, uh uh, clean production, energy, et cetera. It just seems like a no-brainer to me. Am I looking at it too simplistically? Look, I mean, I totally agree with you. Uh, you know, and and what I think has happened, and look, you know, and I so I studied economics and and went to grad school and have a graduate degree in economics, and you know, I was I was taught that free trade is good. Right. Unfettered free trade is good. It's good for the consumer. It's good for everyone. Well, now we know that's just that's really not true. Right. At least at least not, you know, not the way people were selling it to us. And I but I but I think that one of the reasons why we're not we're not really looking that closely at products. And by the way, and it's not just. It's not just again. It's not just the environmental footprint, but it's the human rights. You know, it's it's the it's the labor. Look, I mean, it's it's uh, it's disturbing to me that we created a free. Uh, 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 I don't want to call it free trade, but an international trade system that rewards the poor and bad performers. That is, and I, I think that if most Americans thought about that, they, they'd say that doesn't make any sense at all. That the consumer needs to have that information, and that they should have that information, and I think would make choices. So, so for example, if you, if you look at polling, and we've done a number of polling that looks at and asks the question, would you, Joe or or you know, Julie on the street, if if you uh, would you be willing to pay a little bit more for a product made down the street? that was cleaner than a product that was made overseas and dirtier. It's like 85, 90% of the people say, I'll pay a little bit more for that product made down the street. Right. And, and, and I know that, you know, some of your audience at least remembers, you know, when we have these little small factories down the street, 
you know, in the 1980s. And my, my mom worked as a as a seamstress. Right. And it was a really important job for our family growing up. Uh, we don't have those anymore. And I think that I think that for us, you know, especially people in rural America, it's been um, it's been a, a huge, huge cost to our society, again, to our ability to have socioeconomic opportunities advancing from poor working class up to a, 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 a better quality of life. We've handed that off to other societies. But I so I think that that a lot of this pushback and some of the opposition to prove it itself, by the way, which is bizarre to me, but flows from this idea that if you do anything that restricts free trade, unfettered free trade, if you actually are start looking at, you know, how how products that we import are are uh, made from forced labor or that are made in with very poor environmental standards. If you, you know, if you start looking at all that, then that causes problems for, I don't know, Wall Street and corporate America don't go there. I think you still have a group of people that think that, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, folks, a, a list of, and really just a partial list of some of the products that we consume, we buy, that are <clears throat> potentially part of this, what I think is brilliant legislation, Prove It Act, articles of cement, articles of aluminum, uh, iron and steel, plastics, biofuels, crude oil, fertilizers, glass, hydrogen, lithium batteries, petrochemicals, and natural gas, and so many, so many more. So I'm now going to circle back to that petrochemical natural gas. And I'm going to use that as a segue to refer to an article written by Dave, how a new trade regime can counter Chinese supply chain dominance and neocolonialism. And to give that some context, China naturalizes nationalizes, excuse me, almost every industry that they have. And one of the best examples is the petrochemical oil and gas business. In 1988, they formed a company called China National Petroleum Corporation, CNPC. 1988. <clears throat> Today, that company really run by the Chinese Communist government, has over a million employees. In As a point of reference, ExxonMobil, which I think is the largest producer, actually, of petroleum products, has been around since like 1882, something like that, has about 65,000 employees. So you have to ask yourself, why would a country nationalize an industry so important globally. It already has a million employees. And by the way, do they follow the same uh, exploration production standards as the companies in the United States? The answer is no. So, Dave, what prompted you? And this is, folks, I encourage you to read this. You can find it uh, on the website. We'll reference it momentarily. What prompted you to write this? And it's very powerful, very well written. I appreciate that, Mike. Uh, look, so 
we just became aware as a society uh, about the challenge of Chinese global dominance of supply chains. I mean, it is relatively new, right? Because again, and this, by the way, and this, and this obviously is incredibly linked with trade policy. Uh, but I think, you know, I think COVID really brought it home that the U.S. is way, way, way too dependent on on Chinese supply chains just across the board, by the way. Right. And and I and, and at least in Washington, I mean, there is, by the way, good news in that there's a there's a bipartisan consensus. Democrats, and Republicans both look at this and go, this is a problem. We need to solve it. But they don't quite know how to do it. Right. And uh, I think that for for Republicans, again, there's a little bit of hesitation when it comes to industrial policymaking. Right. Uh, That's that's certainly something that would have been, you know, frowned upon uh, to talk about uh, just a few years ago. But the but some of the supply chain security issues have gotten people to be a lot more willing to talk about those things. But then you have with Democrats, I think, more of a more of a desire to just subsidize industries. And, you know, I tell people, I'm like, look, you can't out subsidize a non-market authoritarian regime the size of China because China has China has vast, vast resources relative to the U.S., particularly when it comes to subsidizing its industry, right? As you're, as you're kind of alluding to with a, with 1 million employees, that seems pretty excessive. Uh, so, so they're obviously subsidizing just that component of their industry. Uh, but they also have, they also have these other tools that we would just never consider like, you know, uh, relaxing environmental compliance and enforcement or, or, putting together forced labor camps, right? We're not going to do any of those things. And so the idea about subsidizing them, I think it's just, it's just really, really naive and, and ignores the size of the challenge that we have here. But there's no question that China's preparing for war against the United States. We know this, right? We've got, we've got multiple, multiple examples and anyone out there, who claims that China is this peaceful nation that doesn't that's not preparing for war? It's just, I mean, again, they're either they're either an unwitting agent, you know, of the of the Communist Party in China, or they just aren't tracking things, or just really naive. And and this is what I say to say the folks who still support unfettered free trade with China. I'm like, look, you know, you we can't afford to continue strengthening. Chinese control of global supply chains. We just can't do it because, again, we know that they're preparing for war against the United States. And if we get into a military conflict with them, it's going to be it's it's going to have a, a devastating effect on our ability to just make things. You know, I got into um, a debate with um, with um, with someone who was interviewing me. It was Fox Business. And it was, it was Stu Barney, actually. And, and we were talking about manufacturing industrial policy. And he said, well, he said, that's not where the U.S. gets its strength. The U.S. gets its strength through Google and, and you know, and, and Microsoft. And I'm like, look, Stu, you can't 
fight a war against China with Google and Microsoft, right? You have to also be able to make things, <laughs> you know, better that, you know, for military use. And so, you know, I think that I think we just we need to understand that I'm not suggesting that we can reshore everything right back to the United States. I don't think that necessarily makes sense, but we certainly need to uh, need to really think through uh, the reasons why we need to accelerate the de-risking from our dependency on Chinese uh, global supply chains. And you do that through a trade policy. I don't see how you do it with anything else, including subsidies or, you know, what the Democratic response has been. And, and Republicans, the Republicans need to step up and just acknowledge the fact that this is just something we have to do as a society. And we're all going to be better off for it, even if we have to pay, I don't know, a few dollars more for a washing machine every year. Right. Or a few dollars more for a car or for or for whatever it is, you know, that this is that when we're talking about the consumer interest and, you know, what what is good for Americans, look, you know, if Americans actually knew what the risks were, how many how many Americans would say, you know what, I want cheap products from China so I can go to Walmart and buy more stuff? <laughs> or would they say, no, I want I want the United States to be stronger I want us to have more jobs uh, for, especially gateway jobs for socioeconomic opportunities. And I want us to be able to deter the Chinese from aggression through a stronger America, right? Everyone, 90-something percent of Americans are going to pick this, the second one, despite the fact that the Wall Street Journal is over here pushing the first one. What's, what's unsettling for me Dave, is that, and by the way, folks, the the place to go and read uh, Dave's article is cresforum.org, Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions Forum.org, C-R-E-S. Name of the article, How a New Trade Regime Can Counter Chinese Supply Chain Dominance and Neocolonialism. I'm going to talk about the Chinese supply chain dominance. We're already at war. We're not firing shots. True. We're, we're not um, strategically placing warships at you know ports here on the west and east coast or ports over there. But what China's doing, if you, if you one were to take the time to look at a map of where they have been very strategic about building relationships, financing debt for either rare earth minerals, food supplies, um, and the list goes on. The things that we're really dependent on, they are strategically controlling too many of them already. And we probably let that go, go on a little too long. Because yes. they, they are, they are a global threat. Period. Period. Yes, yes. And by the way, so uh, we were talking about the the need for us to de-risk and reduce our dependence on Chinese global supply chains. Guess what? They're doing the same thing with us, 
right? And you know, we're you know, we, we you know, we get caught up in you know what we consider to be you know the threats to us, but you know, we still have to remember that the United States is still a dominant player, at least when it comes to energy and ag. And to your point, Mike, the the Chinese have been moving. They've been so so they identified the risk to them years ago, and they've been trying to de-risk from us, right? And reducing our influence over global supply chains when it comes to energy and ag. And so you see this in their overseas investments in both in energy and in ag. And I think that for at least for some Americans, especially farmers, look, I mean, uh, there's been and and this has its roots, by the way, we've, we've had this fantasy when it comes to China and having having open access to the Chinese market for over a century now. OK. And I think that uh, and, I've, and I've seen this before. I've seen the, the arguments uh, against sort of a Trump tariff policy and diplomacy with China. And part of that is, oh, the Chinese are going to retaliate against our ag products. And there's some of that, but I'm going to tell you something. The Chinese, the Chinese are working very diligently and aggressively to harm U.S. farmers today, right? By creating, uh, by creating uh, and or increasing the competitiveness of other ag producers elsewhere in the world. So that not only does that hurt U.S. farmers because they're competing against maybe domestic, they're competing against exports of ag products in the U.S. market. They may be getting a competitive advantage because of what China is doing with with that production. But they're also competing against these products because the Chinese have made them cheaper in third markets. So I think we just have to have a we have to have a much more. I don't know, comprehensive, rational conversation when it comes to this. We have to have a better understanding of what China's actually doing to us uh, in order for us to chart a pathway forward. Dave, are you, are you familiar with um, an organization called Global Carbon Budget? Global Carbon Budget. Maybe they all sound the same to me, Mike. <laughs> well, the reason I ask is every once in a while I'll see this image, this graphic, where they, and I've tried to do enough research to track the validity of this global carbon budget. But here, here's this image that I've seen uh, just before we were to talk last week, that since 2000, the United States has lowered its carbon emissions by 10 over 10 percent that same period of time china's has gone up over 200 percent and my question was going to be if if you're familiar with maybe you're familiar with that, that the answer is yes i just looked it up the answer is yes sorry okay. about that <laughs> so <clears throat> my point was going to be the they don't regulate anything the way that we do with regards to the clean, you know, the a clean environment, producing goods in a clean environment way, environmental way, um, uh, with unforced labor, slavery, whatever you want to call it. Uh, 
they're just not they're not honest brokers or players at all oh no so so and by the way and thanks for thanks for bringing up bringing this up because it's a little weedy for a lot of people but essentially what this global carbon budget does it has it basically gives you uh numbers on how on how much uh emissions that we can put up in the atmosphere before we hit we hit these temperature increases that result in climate change okay uh and you know and it's so when i look at things like that i'm i'm just, i'm really looking at it through the lens of what does this actually mean when we're looking at say what the U.S. is doing versus what China's doing, and I really and I really like how you kind of how you laid it out there because Chinese emissions are are thirty percent of global emissions today, and the U.S. is about ten percent. Okay, so what that so what that means, and by the way, and, and the Biden administration has come up with uh, a target which is no way. I mean, there's just absolutely no way we can meet it. But roughly a fifty percent reduction in U.S. emissions by twenty thirty. Okay, uh, whereas the Chinese have said that they will peak their emissions around twenty thirty. So that means, though, in practice, is that they get to increase and grow their emissions up to twenty thirty, while we pledge to reduce our emissions by fifty percent. Now, so. So what does that mean for if if you believe in the believe in the global carbon budget, the Chinese themselves are going to eat it all up, right? The vast the vast share that's left, the Chinese are going to eat it up. To your point, they have zero interest in mitigating any kind of impact or danger that comes from the growth in their emissions. Period. It's all about the preservation of the Chinese Communist Party. And the economic programs that they need to implement to preserve the power of that party and its infrastructure, and there's a strong correlation between economic activity and emissions. Period. Right. Yeah. So yes, I totally agree with you. Well, I've said this once before. When it comes to the responsibility that we all have of having clean. <clears throat> sustainable, reliable, and affordable energy, not everyone is playing by the same rules. You're, you're in an eight-passenger van, and the passenger, the United States is driving the van, and the, the other seven seats are taken up by representatives of China and India. And the reason I do it that way is that there's seven population and emissions, there's seven times greater than we are. And you're in this van as the driver, but you're the only one taking care of your personal hygiene. You're the only one. Nobody else in the van cares at the <laughs> present time. Yeah. And so every once in a while you open the window for a breath of fresh air, but when you know it's in North Dakota, it's 30 below, you got to close it back up. <laughs> well, it just doesn't I, I think that's a fairly good analogy based on what we're doing to play the, the honest broker role and what some of the other folks are just not doing at all. Well, I'll, I'll let you kind of wrap it up, Dave. I, 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 I really enjoyed your article, the place for people to find out more about you and your organization, crsforum.org. 
if you could have a magic wand and wave it over the heads of everybody making decisions in Washington for us when it comes to dealing with brokers that aren't that honest, what would you like them to know, Dave? You, you know, uh, we have to internalize uh, what's the most likely scenario. And even though it's it's a horrible scenario, uh, you you know, look, I mean, in in life in general, two of the worst mistakes you can make. Number one is you don't know when you're losing. And number two, you don't know when you're winning. OK, either one, either one can be devastating. But in this case, we don't quite. I think we just haven't figured out that we're losing. Okay. And we need to, we need to turn things around really fast. We got to think outside the box and we don't have a whole lot of time to position ourselves in a way that helps avoid this, this worst case scenario that we're talking about, because you only, only uh, avoid this worst case scenario is through strength period. The only way. Dave Banks, thank you so much for joining me. I, I learned a lot um, uh, reading your article. I look forward to reading more of them. Love to have you on in the future again when, when time permits. I know you're awfully busy. Thanks for all the great work that you're doing. It's critically important. I hope you're getting enough people to listen to how important it is because uh, uh, time's kind of wasting and we can't afford to do that. Thank you, Mike. It's been a real privilege. Uh, thank you so much for bringing me on. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm available uh, anytime to talk about this with you and your audience. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dave. Take good care. Bye. You too.